Welcome to Politics is Everything, where we're skipping beer and wine and going straight for the hard liquor. Just kidding. We stick the coffee around here. Kyle, welcome back from a well-deserved break last week. Uh, thanks, Kara. Uh, yeah, and um, there's no, there's a beer and a wine track. There's no liquor track. I don't know what that would be. Um, I have to ask Ron Brownstein, who's done this for a long time, if, if he's thought about what that, what that might be. Maybe that's, uh, maybe that's people with uh, not just four-year college degrees, but uh, but graduate degrees too. That maybe that makes sense. Let's talk about uh, what you wrote about yesterday, which is the decline of split ballot voting between the gubernatorial level and the presidential level or the declining crossover vote. Um, so there's been an, we, we know that there's been an increasing correlation between presidential and down ballot results, um, especially in federal elections. Um, but you also you and Miles did an analysis to observe this with uh, governorship. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about um, what you found and, and and what the data shows. Yeah, there's just a, there's been a decline in a number of governors who represent states that their party didn't win for president. Now, you know, one of the confounding factors here is that, um, you know, the, the lion's share of the governors are not elected concurrently with the presidency. Um, and that, of course, is true for the Senate, although um, once every every two election cycles for a Senate class, you're going to be in a presidential year. Um, the House is, of course, always concurrent with the, with both the presidential and the midterm, all 435 seats. Um, you know, only really a handful of the governorships are elected in presidential years. But still, if you go back a decade or two, you could just find more states that had, you know, a different party for governor as opposed to um for how they how they voted for president, even though they weren't held in you know con, 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 held concurrently in the same election, so right now there are only nine governorships uh, of the fifty in which the partisanship of the governor does not match up with who won the state for president in twenty twenty. You know, if you go back to like twenty after the twenty fifteen elections or after two thousand seven, um, two thousand seven it was twenty one of the fifty, uh, twenty fifteen it was seventeen of the fifty. Um, so there's been a, there's been a decline there, which sort of makes sense just given the general kind of nationalization of politics that we always talk about, which I think is, of course, a real thing. Now, of course, just because, um, you know, people's partisanship and nationalization is kind of bleeding down the ballot doesn't mean that people don't, you know, make different decisions. And you've got, you know, a few red, pretty dark red states, you know, Kentucky, Louisiana, Kansas, they have a Democratic governors, a uh, couple of uh, or, or a handful of, of pretty democratic states, of very democratic states uh, like Vermont, um, even Virginia at this point has become pretty uh, democratic at the federal level, but it has a Republican governor too. So, you know, th- there's th- th- there's more I think wiggle room for governors to maybe be a little bit different than. Um, uh, you know, the, the national partisanship of their states. But um, you do still see this sort of lining up. I mean, if you look at some of the maps we had back in 2007, you had like, you know, you had uh, uh, Democratic governors in like Wyoming and Tennessee um, and Oklahoma. And, you know, you, you, you'd find that kind of hard to believe, um, in, you know, nowadays. One of the things I've been looking at is also um, at the state legislatures, and what um, what we've seen there is also a deepening of partisanship there. So there is also more alignment um, in trifectas among state legislatures and gubernatorialships, and not only that, but by bigger margins. Um, and so I, you know, I think this is overall gives us a picture of this deeper hyper-partisan era that we're in on the one hand, but then, you know, just also with 
as you point out in the article, the gubernatorial elections being in non-presidential years, especially, um, you know, turnout varies so greatly. And so, you know, there there is some sort of advantage um, for for the parties um, who are opposite of the of the presidency to to maybe you know, th- there's different incentives for, for voting in, in those off-year elections. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, the, the, I think it's, I think it's 36 of the 50 governorships are contested in, um, in midterm years. Um, the, the specific part of the complication is New Hampshire and Vermont have elections every two years. Every other state has a, has a four-year term for, for governor. Um, and almost all of the, you know, the big states have their gubernatorial elections in midterm years. And of course, midterm years, of course, as as you mentioned, the turnout is different and smaller, um, but they also can be like very heavily skewed, you know, toward one party at the expense of the other. Um, you know, not so much in twenty twenty two, but certainly, um, I'd say the past four, you know, the four midterms before that were sort of more, you know, clearly skewed toward one party or the other. And so that has some influence. Now, again, if you had the gubernatorial elections in presidential years, um, you, you probably would have even less crossover than you have now um, because the state elections would get uh, would, would get partisanized. And so, you know, I could see different arguments for it. Like if you're if you're a believer that, you know, the, the, the biggest electorate is the best and that uh, the most people should be able to weigh in, um, the idea would then be to have all these key elections in the presidential year, which I sort of intuitively I kind of agree with. But I could also see... Um, you know, in a time of nationalized politics, if you put the governorships on with all the pre- with the presidential results, you're probably just contributing to more and more nationalization too, um, which maybe is not that good of a thing either. So you could you, again, I think it's kind of a it's kind of a difficult argument. Um, there has been some movement in some, um, I think, it's some municipal elections across the country to align them with presidential years, basically just to help with help with the turnout. Um, but that's not something I don't that, that hasn't happened at the at the gubernatorial level in recent history, as far as I can remember. You and Miles also looked at beer track versus wine track voters, um, and this is a phrase that was coined by Ron Brownstein. Um, and you find that even though he has many weak points, including the legal challenges he's facing and low favorability, even among Republicans, um, you know, that Republicans that are on both of these tracks, um, you know, are still relatively remain supportive of the former president, Donald Trump, relative to the other Republican candidates. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about uh, what we're seeing in beer track versus wine track voters. Yeah. So, so, you know, for the purposes of discussion, the beer track basically means not someone who doesn't have a four-year college degree wine track means someone who does have a, have a four-year college degree. And it's always, it's really always been the case for Trump that he's been weaker with the so-called wine track than with the beer track. And you could really extrapolate that to the general electorate too, in terms of particularly among white voters who Trump brought into the his coalition versus who he pushed away from his coalition. Now, obviously it's, you know, that is an oversimplification Um, even amongst like white college graduates. Of course, there's still a lot of white college graduates who vote, um, Republican, just just uh, Democrats tend to win that group now, whereas Republicans used to win it in the past. Uh, and uh, the white non-college vote uh, has been relatively Republican in recent years, but got more Republican with with Trump at the, as the leader of the party. But you know, within the GOP, what you saw when Ron DeSantis, frankly, was polling stronger like six months ago, was that you know Trump was leading with the, the beer track and, and leading overall. Um, but DeSantis was often leading in polls with the, the you know wine track voters, and also to the extent that like. A Mike Pence or a Nikki Haley was getting support. It was definitely more from the college-educated voters than the non-college-educated voters in the Republican Party. 
But that now as you look at the polls, yes, Trump is still stronger on the beer track than the wine track, but he's usually leading the beer track by a ton. And he's also leading in some of the polls we looked at uh, with the wine track voters too. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in even a state like South Carolina, um, in which uh, uh, Fox Business did some polls recently, you know, Trump was up. He was at near 50. And I think Nikki Haley was actually technically in, in second place, but she was at like 14. Ron DeSantis was at 13. And there really wasn't that huge of a difference between the the uh, wine track and beer track in that poll. I think it was uh, 51% on the non-college group and 43% for Trump on the college group. So pretty steady. There was a bigger gap in Iowa, um, but Trump was still, he had 57% with the, non, with the non-college uh, uh, respondents. And he had 33%, but most crucially was leading with the college respondents because their vote was so splintered. So, you know, at the very least, a credible challenger to Trump is going to have to unify or, you know, coalesce among the white college group or the college group to have really any chance of beating Trump. And not only is that not happening, but Trump is actually winning that group in in certain polls or in in a lot of the polls we looked at. Um, So it's, you know, it, it, it... I mean, when, you know, it sort of makes sense when you look at the subgroups that, hey, Trump is up by so much, he's got to be leading with a bunch of certain bunch of categories, but he really is doing better in that group um, now than he was several months ago. And it helps account for the, the fact that his, his, uh, um, his lead in this, in this race has really, has really stabilized. Um, you know, his overall level of support is not that much higher than it was. Part of it is that DeSantis, I think, has like fallen further than Trump has gained. Um, but we know that based on the way that they've run the campaign and what, what they talk about every day, that Trump considers DeSantis to be his number one threat, which I think is, is a reasonable place to be. Uh, and, you know, DeSantis has basically gotten weaker um, uh, as, as time has moved on here. So, you know, we're turning the calendar to August here, still a lot of time, but, you know, DeSantis is going through a campaign reboot, uh, you know, two months into his formal campaign. So like, there's some problems here. I mean, people sometimes recover from that. Um, I think about like John McCain in 2008, where he basically had to like, um, he, 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 he gutted a lot of his operation and just focused on New Hampshire and he ended up bouncing back. But that was also in a wide open race. This is a race that has a clear favorite in it. Um, so it's hard to, I think it's hard to reboot on the fly. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the numbers are what they are and they, they look really good for, for Trump right now. You mentioned that we're turning to August and we expect to, we will also have the Republican debate coming up. Um, and it's unclear whether Trump will participate in in that debate. So, you know, that could be an opportunity for some consolidation around um, an alternative candidate. But as you pointed out um, in, in your analyses and here, you know, Trump is still winning and the, the issue has been more pulling away from DeSantis rather than from Trump um, by the alternative candidates. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's there's this increasing battle basically for second place. And you have, you know, the the story of the last several months is that you've had other candidates emerge in this in this race. So, you know, the more the, the, I think that the Trump theory of the case was always that the, the more candidates there were, the better there was for them particularly because they have such a big block of, of support. So um, I could understand why um, why Trump might skip the debate because it would just, you know, remove some of the oxygen from that event. 
Um, I guess yeah. the, the worry would be is that someone does do really well and sort of catches fire and then um, and, and then they could have maybe had an opportunity for the candidate himself to try to squash that during the debate. But they, um, you know, abdicated that by not showing up. Um, you know, one time in 2016, right before Iowa, Trump did skip a debate. Um, he did end up losing Iowa. I don't know if it was necessarily because he skipped a debate, but um, in high, you know, in hindsight, it didn't seem like it, it, it was it was a good idea. Obviously, Iowa didn't end up mattering. He ended up winning the nomination. Uh, but it, it's it's not it's not a, like an obvious call to me as to just if I were on his campaign whether he should he should do it or, or not. Take a step back, like normatively speaking, I think debates are good. It's a good way for people to see the candidates. A lot of people typically tune in. You would hope that all the major candidates would show up at one of these debates, but. Um, uh, I can under- I could see it both ways from the Trump side. I'm not sure if you saw this, but Frank Luntz posted um, a new political ad um, uh, for Trump, and you know they are really leaning into the political victimhood <laughs> um, as well as conspiracy theories, and you know that also seems to be sort of resonating uh, uh, and being able to, in, in some ways, effectively combat. Uh, some of the messaging against Trump. Um, and and it, it, it also seems to be sort of, you know, he, he's also focusing, he, while he's focusing on, you know, DeSantis as the main threat, you know, he's also already going after Biden and, and the Democrats. Um, I'm reminded of the, the old Bill Clinton, I feel your pain um, quote. Um, and I think Trump is also good at, for people who like him for, um, making himself seem empathetic to them. But I also think it's, it's not just like, I feel your pain. It's you feel my pain. (laughs) And if you're Trump, it's like, Hey, I'm, I'm doing this for you. I'm, I'm under attack for all these things. They're indicting me, blah, blah, blah. And like, again, whether it's, I mean, you know, certainly in this documents case, the the, the facts of it seem pretty bad for the former president, but setting that aside, it hasn't really hurt him amongst uh, Republican voters in part because he has this connection with them. Um, and he, uh, he shares the same enemies as they do. Um, and it's, it's, it's pretty powerful politically speaking, I think. So one other topic for today, and that is what's happening with redistricting in Alabama. Um, listeners will recall that we spent some time talking about the Allen versus Milligan decision um, from the Supreme Court this week that threw out the state's congressional map. Um, and this week, Governor Kay Ivey signed off on a remedial map um, that was passed by the Republican legislature during a special session. Um, Kyle, can you talk a little bit about what that means and what we might see moving forward? Uh, so basically, the Alabama Republican-controlled legislature decided to – I don't think they really wanted to actually address the the court ruling in a meaningful kind of way. So they – change some of the districts around to make one of them more competitive, but still pretty clearly Republican leaning and also not uh, particularly close to being majority black. And so it's, it's like it went from, I think 30 to 40%, the second district, um, which was, um, you know, sort of, you know, is, is in uh, uh, Southeast uh, Alabama and based on, um, you know, what the court said at Allen v. Milligan and also some of the longstanding jurisprudence about the, uh, Section two of the Voting Rights Act. It just doesn't seem like that district's going to cut it. Now, you know, I guess courts could could go, you know, ways that you don't expect it. But, um, but I, I think it, you know, it, a district that would would comply, I think, would have to be close to fifty percent black, or, uh, or or over, you know, over over fifty percent black. Um, and there may be other options. We go through some of those in in, in the piece today. 
Um, but, uh, you know, I, on one hand, you could say, I mean, and, and, and some people on the left have, have, have said this, that um, this is reminiscent of basically the bad old days when um, conservatives in a state like Alabama would just sort of, you know, not do what the courts told them to do and and go kicking, kicking and screaming. And th- I think there's an element of that. But I also think there's an element of basically buck passing by the Alabama legislature in which. They're like, hey, we don't want to, we don't be the, we don't want to be the ones holding the knife when one of our incumbents has to lose his seat. Um, so therefore, we're just going to do a map here that's going to get rejected. The court will draw it, and then we could say we have clean hands about it. So there's there are two competing things going on here. Um, but again, it it looks like this is you know this this map is probably not going to be uh, um, you know used for 2024. But it, you know, and also there's there's you know. Uh, uh, there's a lot of delay going on here as well. And I think you might see that in some of these other states like Louisiana and Georgia, potentially, where the Allen v. Milligan ruling may eventually force new districts to be drawn. But from a Republicans' perspective, if you can kick that to 2026 as opposed to 2024, that's you know preferable, obviously. And so uh, I think there's some of that going on, too. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for covering so much ground with us this week and for the great analyses. Listeners, there are links to each of the crystal ball analyses in the episode notes. Thanks, Kara. Coming up next, we talk with Nora Noose, an Emmy-nominated producer, writer, freelance journalist, and UVA alumna about her new book, 24 Hours in Charlottesville, An Oral History of the Stand Against White Supremacy. Professor Larry Sabato was one of the interviewees for this volume. Noose Field produced Anderson Cooper's coverage of the 2017 white nationalist riot in Charlottesville, Virginia. Listeners, stay with us. Nora, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much for having me. I wonder if you can just start by sharing what motivated you to conduct these community-based oral histories. Um, and and to write 24 hours in Charlottesville. I think a big part of the inspiration to write this book was what I felt like was a misunderstanding on the national stage of what actually happened in Charlottesville that summer. There is a lot of discussion of, you know, what people now call Charlottesville, as if that's not also the name of a town uh, and, and a place that I love. Um, and I was talking to some of my colleagues at CNN, especially when the um, Science versus Kessler trial was ongoing and trying to explain what actually happened that, that week uh, and really that whole summer. And so that was the, the impetus to write the book. Um, you know, those of us who live here and follow local politics... Um, you know, knew what was being planned for quite some time. Um, uh, and, you know, I had a couple of students at the time who were Cavalier Daily reporters. And in, in, including in, a, in the politics course I was teaching that spring, we were following very closely what was happening at city council and on the local level with decisions that were being made. And then also the response and organizing um, for what has now become what has now come to be known as as the summer of hate it's hard it was hard for me at the time seeing how the national media just kind of descended into the community as that was happening but i i wonder if you can talk about what you've learned in this process of of doing these oral histories and as someone who was covering that day about how journalists should be thinking differently um about their coverage of events like this I think what's hard is that the national media 
is responsible for telling this story to the nation and to the world while for the most part kind of parachuting into town. And I always felt, you know, my, my, my skin would, you know, bristle when someone looked at it about me as a national reporter because it's also your job and we can't be everywhere. And part of good reporting is going into a situation and learning what's happening very quickly and making connections on the ground and being able to authoritatively report on what is happening. And so I have, you know, quote unquote, parachuted into a lot of small towns and then covered national disasters and shootings and uh, rarely something good uh, also. Um, and so covering Charlottesville, covering August 12th was hard because most people on the national level didn't have an understanding of the entire context leading up to it, both earlier that summer and what we now call the summer of hate, but at the time was just this like weird summer where white premises kept coming to town. And then also the larger context of uh, race in Charlottesville and, and Charlottesville the place. You know, on your point about understanding the broader context of racism and, and race relations in Charlottesville, um, Nakia Walker, who ended up being elected mayor of the city, slogan for her campaign was unmasking the illusion. And in the springtime, I remember um, in, in March in, in, and April, many people were questioning her about that slogan, like, what are you talking about? And then all of a sudden afterwards, when all of a sudden more academics, um, others in the community saw what happened, it was like, oh, that's why your slogan is what it is, you know? And so it all mm. of a focused a point on uh, racism and what was really needed for racial justice in a community that, you know, has largely thinks of itself as liberal. And I think we'll probably get into this, but it it was Black women and women of color who were calling this out all along. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as an alumna of the University of Virginia and resident of Charlottesville, can you kind of t contextualize Charlottesville and its atmosphere prior to the events of 11th and 12th and how this atmosphere contributed to the culmination of a white nationalist riot? Absolutely. I mean, so Charlottesville is looked at as this blue dot in a sea of red, is how it's often described. Um, and electorally, that is true. Charlottesville tends to uh, vote blue uh, in, in a purple state. Um, and Charlottesville has a really rich history, both as the home of the University of Virginia, um, but also the home of Thomas Jefferson. And this is something that is held up as uh, a pro uh, in, in the history of town. And perhaps there are some good things that come from it. I mean, just to be frank, I was a Jefferson scholar at the University of Virginia. I mean, this is something that that I have thought about a lot in, in, as it pertains to my own life. Um, but Jefferson built the University of Virginia. And when I say he built the University of Virginia, slaves built the University of Virginia. Enslaved people did the labor and they continued to labor here for uh, generations. And that is something that we were just beginning to grapple with when I was a student at UVA. Um, we had just started raising money for the enslaved memorial, enslaved laborers memorial, which now is built, of course, and, and beautiful. Um, we had, Monticello had just started reckoning with this and had just added a, a tour from the perspective of Sally Cummings, who, of course, Thomas Jefferson had children with um, and whose descendants, uh, some of whom are still in Charlottesville. Um, Thomas Jefferson was a white supremacist. I mean, 
point blank period, Thomas Jefferson was a white supremacist. I'm not saying that because he owned slaves. I'm not saying that because of Monticello. I'm not saying that um, because uh, I'm connecting the dots between he was a white supremacist in that he wrote in his own writings publicly that he knew would be published and then got published that white people were better than black people. Period. The end. Thomas Jefferson was a white supremacist. And so grappling with that legacy while at a school that venerates Thomas Jefferson is extremely difficult and painful for a community that then is, you know, Charlottesville was 53% uh, enslaved people at the start of the Civil War. Charlottesville, if you look at the entire population of Charlottesville, uh, would have not supported joining that Confederacy. Um, you know, UVA students raised a Confederate flag on on campus. I lived uh, kind of catty corner to the Confederate cemetery when I was a freshman, a first year uh, at UVA. Uh, and that is a very real legacy that persists in a town where you have uh, a, a, an extreme problem with affordable housing, an extreme problem with gentrification, and frankly, the university taking over land of Black communities. It's a problem where you have literacy rates, health outcome rates of Black people in Charlottesville extremely lower. Um, it is a continued problem in almost every facet of life in Charlottesville, a town that, as someone told me for a book, is very focused on someone else's good time. Um, sometimes we just need to sit in that discomfort um, mm-hmm. and and think about, you know, it, these, these aren't things that we can necessarily reconcile, right? But mm-hmm. hopefully we can do something about it. One of the things that your book does is try to draw out some of the discrepancies um, between different accounts of that day. And, and we want people to buy the book and, and read <laughs> um, the, this, this rich new history for themselves. But I wonder if you could give us um, an example of um, uh, what you found in, in your research regarding some of the major misconceptions about August 11th and 12th, and then also some of the discrepancies in the, in the accounts of, of, of that summer? Sure. I think one of the big kind of discrepancies between people who had connections to town versus afterward, what, or, or outside of town, was this idea of um, when the car attack happened. Um, and I won't get get too graphic here it, the book is pretty graphic um so this won't be that that triggering uh, for folks listening but there's this narrative that oh white nationalists came to charlottesville the town rose up and counter-protested against them the white nationalists got you know angry and drove their car into a crowd and killed one all of those individual sentences might be true but that's not how it happened what happened was the enormous amount of people in town won. I mean, they scared the white supremacists away. They took over town. They got their rally declared an unlawful assembly before it was even scheduled to begin. And it was over. You know, they had taken a break for lunch. A lot of the white nationalists had already left town or were on their way out of town. The uh, white, the white nationalists, they'd left and people were celebrating. They were in the, Park in McAfee Park, most of the activists eating peanut butter sandwiches and celebrating their victory when they got a call that there were white nationalists down um, 
at one of the uh, public housing projects in Charlottesville that has a lot of Black residents. And they quickly mobilized and got back onto the street and were marching down to take care of the threat. When they were about halfway there, the uh, word came out that the residents were fine. They were handling it on their own. They actually didn't want a bunch of people to just sign upon them. They thought it would inflame the situation. So they said, thanks, we're, we haven't we've got a handle. You guys can go back. And so these people, the kind of protesters, turned around. And for the most part, uh, these two different groups of counter protesters converged at a street corner. And they were all so excited to see each other and they were all singing songs and they were all uh, celebrating. A lot of people described that moment as the best moment of the day, as the most jubilant mood of the day. They had won. Like they were celebrating. This was over. I mean, not over in a you know universal sense, but the day's battle was, was over. Um, and they turned up 4th Street. And that's when the car came. And so, you know, my, my goddaughter is 10 years old. And she asked me the other day if I could explain what happened in Charlottesville to her. And her mom was there. And I was like, do you want me to really explain the real story of what happened in Charlottesville? She's like, yeah, no, like, I think she's old enough for you to explain it. And it was something about distilling it down into the bad guys left. The good guys were celebrating that they had won. And one of the bad guys was annoyed and embarrassed and frustrated and angry that he lost and he wanted to hurt the people that won. And it kind of just distilled it into this really simple term um, that and didn't Heather Heyer's death. I don't know how you grapple with this um, as well, but it, I feel like many folks don't understand that they really came here as an act of terror. Um, so you mentioned um, in your account just now, you know, that they left. Um, it, so they left the downtown area, but they also reconvened in other public spaces. Um, yes. Uh, that were just outside of the downtown and yep. so I was with, I had two very small children at the time. Seeing everything that happened, um, we went that afternoon down to Walnut Creek Park thinking that we would be able, which is just south of town, and thinking that we would be able to um, get away from what was happening, um, and, uh, you know, just trying to get out. Um, and we got there and there was actually a militia. Um, at Walnut Creek Park. And this was right after, um, this was just after um, Heather had been uh, murdered. And, you know, they were talking about their in intense mm. wound there, right? Um, that, that they purposely showed up with their guns, right? That and and I and I very distinctly remember one of them, uh, one of the members of the militia saying, "If they're scared of this gun, wait till I see what I bring next time. Wait till they see mm -hmm. what I bring next time." Like that, that just kind of like replays over in my head because it, and it also just wasn't, and you know, this wasn't an isolated incident, and there were plans after both to return to Charlottesville but also to go to other communities. And many of the people who went that day became targets um, in, um, in the dark web um, and were put on forum boards, um, mm -hmm. including professors, including UVA students, mm -hmm. community members, 
um, and were used as a rallying point as these as, as these same people went to organize um, in other states. Um, and, and so, you know, I just, I want to sort of emphasize that, you know, there was this sort of intention, the intention of terror was there. Um, even if the case of, of Heather's death, um, you know, was one person. Absolutely. And I think we saw that in the streets of Charlottesville. We saw that with the battle, essentially the riots in the streets of Charlottesville. And the thing that's very clear throughout the entire book is that, People knew this was going to happen, and it was activists who were warning city leaders at all levels, saying, this is going to happen, and this is absolutely going to be violent. They are planning a certain level of violence here. They're planning extreme levels of violence here. Um, and that, that's a whole, you know, a whole separate part of the story um, that then I think really uh, puts the, the final crash into... Um, stark relief. So you published this account almost six years after the events of August 11th and 12th, and we've also learned that some present in Charlottesville also participated in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. What can we learn from these events about white nationalism in the United States and how journalists should be covering these events and movements? This is a question that I am uh, continuing to try to answer. Um, in terms of how journalists should be covering white nationalism, um, because it has to be done with a, a level of thoughtfulness and uh, clear-eyedness, if that's a word, uh, for how the white supremacists, white nationalists, are then using our coverage to further their own goal. So the line between August 12th and January 6th is a direct one. There were people at both, some of the same people at both, they were, they were uh, working on tactics, workshopping tactics, um, and were able to uh, attack the U.S. Capitol building. Um, the way that we cover this is important because it can help their propaganda aims it can help uh them to recruit new members it can help inform the level of threat among the community the kind of warnings that we uh promote are very important to communicate but at the same time uh you don't want to be the little boy who cried wolf and and there's definitely arguments of, of that happening um I think the the way to cover white nationalism generally is a question that I don't know that our profession has fully grappled with yet. Um, the one thing I will say in my own experience and in this book is that I made the decision not to interview uh, what's part of this. And that is something that was very important for my work or not to do for my work because I felt like I could tell the story even using words of white supremacists through work they had already completed. So by having conversations, um, using their um, deposition notes and, and court appearances, their speeches, public videos, words of merit from that day captured on video, um, it, it managed to be a complete story without having to give them you know, the satisfaction of having an interview requested, essentially. 
Nora Noose, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join Skylar Tesler and me on Politics as Everything to share what you've learned as you have engaged in the community here in Charlottesville and done these very rich and descriptive oral histories to give us a better understanding about what happened, not only at the Unite the Right riot, um, but also how it relates more broadly to the white nationalist movement and some of the political violence that our country is facing. Listeners, you can find a link to Nora's new book, 24 Hours in Charlottesville, an oral history of the stand against white supremacy in the episode notes. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.